I'd like to have you turn with me to the last chapter of the book of Hosea. That would be Hosea chapter 14. <coughs> Hosea chapter 14. We are now in the last study of our journey through this particular prophecy. Now, it was a very heavy prophecy primarily because the northern kingdom of Israel at the time of uh, the prophet Hosea had fallen deeper and deeper into their sin of idolatry and uh, based upon really the disobedience of the people to God disobedient and rebellious to the truth of the of the Lord being the only God to worship and God through this particular prophet Hosea brought this message of, of repentance you know telling them that they needed to repent of their sins or else they would be judged greatly and of course he likened it unto adultery. And certainly it was spiritual adultery that they had committed. A nation that God had raised up to be very much like his very own. Of course, they were his own. Likened as, as unto a wife, unto a, a husband. But they went off after other gods. And of course, the object lesson was through the prophet Hosea himself, who, who actually was told by God to marry a prostitute, whose name was Gomer. And they had two children. And the Lord wanted them named. in a way that would give them uh, a realization of what they had done. No longer my people was the name of one when they were his people. No longer, he said. And of course because of that the prophecies themselves were, were very, very, very heavy. All along, the whole idea was to get the nation to repent. Now, God knew that he would have to take them through a time of discipline, a time of judgment. And all through these 13 chapters, the first 13 chapters, there was constant reminders of what they had done. Until they came now toward the end, and throughout, as we'll see tonight, there were just some things that uh, God would do to reveal to them that he loved them because they were his people, and that he continued to call them to himself, but that he would eventually honor his covenant 
to Abraham. The unilateral covenant of saying that uh, you will always be my people and I will take care of you. I will not destroy you. But if you get out of hand, I have to punish you. Which is what he's doing to this northern kingdom. Remember the northern kingdom began completely. I mean, it was not like they fell into sin. They started in sin. They separated from, from uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Judah primarily because it was in the, in the land of Judah. It was in the uh, area of the people of Judah that Jerusalem existed. And, and there was the place that God said, that's going to be where you worship me. On Mount Zion, on the hill called Zion. And Jeroboam, who took the other ten tribes away, took them up to the north to do one thing, and that is to worship their own gods. To say that they were worshiping God, but to make golden calves, one in the lower part of the northern kingdom and one in the upper part of the northern kingdom. Two shrines in which they worshiped false gods and committed Adult, uh, idolatry and spiritual adultery against God. With all that said, now we, it just brings us to the last chapter. The previous chapter, chapter 13, of course, God talks about his love for them, focuses his attention on his love for them. And now you see the cry of God unto the people through the prophet, because it's the prophet who's actually calling his people to the Lord. He says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. For thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take, your, uh, take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Ashur, that is Assyria, shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, You are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. There is a, there is a truth that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to remember. And I would hope and pray that each and every one of you is a believer in Jesus Christ. And when I say that, I mean a true believer with all of your heart, that you have chosen to follow the Lord. You have, you have said, this is what I do now, and this is who I follow. So it's a truth that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to remember, and that is this, that the Lord never abandons his people. The Lord never abandons his people. No person who truly follows him will ever be forsaken. The true follower of the one true and living God will always have his presence to guide them and to protect them. Always. Time and again, we see throughout the, New, the Old Testament, more in the Old Testament than, than even in the New. It's, it's really uh, understood in the New Testament. Even when Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world, I'll be with you. But from the very beginning, God said, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. So throughout every trial of life that we face, 
The Lord will always give enough strength to either conquer or walk through the hardship, the affliction, and or the consequential pains of failure. Whatever we are going through, God will always give us the strength to overcome those things. Or he will give us the strength to walk through those hardships, to walk through the afflictions that we face, to walk through the trials that all of us, each and every one of us, there's not a person in this room that doesn't face any trial whatsoever, no trial whatsoever. Every one of us faces something. And for the most part, none of us like to face anything, right? I don't like to face trials. Raise your hand if you love trials. Not one of us loves trials. But we love the God who gets us through them. Time and again, the Lord, in his precious word, promises to give the true believer and and follower of victorious life, a, a fruit-bearing and triumphant life, even through every and all problems that may be encountered. God has promised that. Furthermore, and of the greatest importance, the Lord promises to give everlasting life to those who repent of their sins and place their trust and their hope in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. So when the Lord God was exhorting the children of Israel in the wilderness, going all the way back to the time of Moses, when God was exhorting the children of, uh, of Israel in the wilderness, he prophesied. He prophesied the very condition that they would find themselves in years later during the time of the prophets, in particular the time of Hosea. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. We're setting up the last chapter. The reality is the last chapter doesn't take that long to go through, so I'm going to fill in the gaps here. But Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now we've been there before, kind of quickly, just to express the fact that these things had happened, uh, and it was foretold. But we're going to dig a little deeper tonight. In verse 25 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of your Bibles if you have an Old and New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25, it says, When thou shalt beget children, and children's children. So what the Lord is saying to them here, through Moses, is that as you progress on into the land, as you progress on into the promises that I've given you, when thou shalt beget children and children's children, and you shall have remained long in the land, but notice the next phrase, and shall corrupt yourselves. He's already telling them he knows that they're going to corrupt themselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. Now this is hundreds of years before Hosea. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto you go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. Now, when he says utterly be destroyed, does not mean that they will be destroyed to the point that they will not have one life left. It's just that as a nation that had trusted in God and should have trusted in God for everything, 
that nation would itself be destroyed. And then notice it goes on to say, and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations. So you'll notice, yeah, the nation itself is destroyed from the standpoint of being in the world scene, as it were. But it says, the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, among the nations. In other words, the heathen is the goyim, the goyim. And the goyim, of course, is, is a word used for nations and Gentiles, but it's also used for the heathen and the pagan, which was everybody else that wasn't an Israelite. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. Did, did you notice something there? Where the Lord leads you. The Lord hasn't left them. He's allowed them to be destroyed as a nation, but he's not left them. And there you shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, with which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Idols. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, in other words, from there, if right from there you, saw, you start to seek the Lord thy God, the one true God, thou shalt find him, if thou shalt seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. And when thou art in tribulation, when you are in trouble, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, notice, not just in the time of Hosea, but in our time today, in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice, and notice verse 31, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, and literally it means that he is a compassionate God. He will not forsake thee. The word forsake here is in the Hebrew the word rapha. Rapha. Now some of you might have heard that word used as uh, the word for healing. That uh, our God is a, uh, Jehovah Rapha or Yahweh Rapha. And, and it is in, in the context of healing. And I'll explain the word in just a moment because this is what you need to understand. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant, notice this, nor forget the covenant of, the, of thy fathers which he sware unto them. So there is that prophecy that points to them as being those who would eventually falter, fail, and fall flat on their faces worshiping other gods. When, time and again, we could go back actually to the book of Exodus and, and hear the people say, oh, every law that God gives us we're going to do and of course that talks about the ten that were that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai and they said oh that's only ten we can do ten they didn't do one they broke every law of God and if you think that that's not easy to do oh it's it's really think think about Adam and Eve they only had one law and they broke that one in the garden That tells you about three things that John, the apostle, talked about in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The power they have. 
if we are ourselves not surrendered to the living God. So now jump to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31 verses 5 through 8, it says, And the Lord shall give them up before your face. And that is, of course, speaking of those as they're entering into the promised land. It says, The Lord shall give them up, you know, the enemies, that you may do unto them according unto all the commandments which I have commanded you. Now, notice what he says in verse 6. He says, Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee, so the Lord goes with them. He will not fail thee. The word fail there is rapha. The same word as forsake. Nor forsake thee, which is actually another Hebrew word, azav, hazav. So this is the point that uh, I'm getting to by using these particular chapters in Deuteronomy. Well, I'll get to the point in a minute. Got to read on for just a couple more verses. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord has sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit. And the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee, he will be with thee, he will not fail thee, Rapha, neither forsake thee, Azav. Fear not, neither be dismayed. One more passage, verses 16 and 17, same chapter, Deuteronomy 31. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up. And notice what he says. This is prophetic. The people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land. That is exactly what the book of Hosea is about. That they eventually went a-whoring after the gods or the strangers of the land, committing spiritual adultery, whither they go to be among them, and notice what they will do to God, and they will forsake me. The word is ahav, ahav. They will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Now that is the, that is the, uh, uh, the conditional covenant. They will break that covenant. And then notice verse 17. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them. Now, remember, before he said, I will not forsake you. Is God lying? No. Because he said, I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you. But here he says, I will ahav them. A different word. I will forsake them. In other words, I'm going to loosen my hold on them. I'm going to relinquish them. I'll explain in a moment. And I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? So in these passages that I've just read you, Two different words are used for the English word forsake. Rafa, when, when, when used for forsake in its context, it means to abandon. And it means to abandon completely. And God said, I will not abandon you. I will not abandon you completely. I will not get rid of you completely. 
Therefore, the Lord will not abandon his people. In the later chapters of Deuteronomy, the word ahav is used, and it means, again, to relinquish, which means to withdraw from, to withdraw and to retreat from. In other words, God backs off. You ever feel sometimes, you know, when you're going through times when you've gotten a little bit rebellious with God, you know, that eventually you just kind of feel like God's withdrawn from you? I've, I've actually heard people say, where are you, God? You know, where, where are you when I need you? He's never left you, but he's trying to get your attention and he withdraws. So as the people will forsake the Lord for other gods and idols, the Lord himself will withdraw from them. In effect, and in keeping with the literal meaning of the word in Hebrew, he will loosen his grip on them. You want to go play with idols? You want to play with idols and, and you know, made of wood and stone? And they, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They got tongues, but they can't speak. You want to go play with them? He loosens his grip. And then they get into all kinds of things. Because they themselves started it. They relinquished their hold with God. One of the points I'm trying to make here is the fact that God has a grip on us if we're his people. But as his people, we need to have a grip on him. And we need to keep our grip on him. You ever seen a father teaching his kid how to walk? Maybe you've experienced this yourself. Or a mom, too, where they're trying to walk, you know, and, and they, but they're reaching up for something, and the father just sticks out his finger, and the child grabs hold of the finger, and then the father leads the child, and the child feels so comfortable because he's got a grip on that father. But once they let go, where will they go? What will they do? It is critical for us to understand this about the Lord and about his disobedient, rebellious people because in the end, he will never abandon them for he never forgets his covenant with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. He will never forget the covenant that he made with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. He never will forget. And so the final words of Hosea then, what we're getting into here in this chapter, are memorable. For through them, the Lord presents the people with a choice. And maybe the Lord's presenting a choice to you today. But in these final words, he's presenting the people of Israel, his own people. He's presenting them with a choice. He makes an appeal to them to choose righteousness over sin. To choose salvation over sin. To choose deliverance over judgment. To choose life over death. To choose repentance over rejection. And to choose godliness over wickedness. 
That is a choice we're given every day. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, for the most part, we stay close to the Lord. You know, we, we encourage you, you know, read the Bible daily. Get into the Word of God daily. Get into the Word of God in prayer. Get up early. Pray early. You know, because early will I seek thee, the Word, the, the word of God says. We want to begin our day ready to serve the Lord, ready to follow the Lord, ready to be led by the Lord, ready to be led by the Holy Spirit so that we can do everything that's going to bring honor and glory to Him. Why? Because we appreciate with all of our heart the things that He did in sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth so that we could have life and have it more abundantly by having eternal life, a life that never ends beyond this life. So the prophet Hosea issued a strong appeal to the people for them to repent. When you look at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. The word for return there is the word shuv in the, in the Hebrew, and it, and, and it literally means to return and to retreat. But it also means to repent. Because repentance is turning completely away from the direction that you're going and turn and head in a totally different direction, opposite direction, and go in the direction of God. Repent from going into the world, repent and turn to God. Return, Israel, unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Now we keep, keep that in mind. The emphasis is you have fallen by your own sin. Verse 2, take with you words. So if you're going to repent and you're heading toward God again, guess what you need to bring with you? Words. We'll see which words are important here. Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, hear the words. Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. Receive us with your grace, with your undeserved favor. So will we render the calves of our lips. I'll explain that in just a moment. Verse 3, Ashur shall not save us. In other words, Assyria is not taking us to save us. <laughs> we will not ride upon horses. We're not going to trust in horses. We're not going to trust in what the world trusts as strength, military strength, whatever. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. We're not going to say any more to these idols. We're not going to say any more to these idols of stone and of brick or, 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 or of wood. You are our gods. We're not going to say that anymore. For in thee, in you, God, the fatherless find mercy. In you. Those are the words. So in the prophet's heart, there was no denying that the people had fallen by their own selfish, self-willed iniquity. As had been pointed out before, Always in, in the last chapter of any book, especially a, pro a prophetic book, it kind of gives you a little bit of a review of where you've been, in particular Hosea. So you go back to Hosea chapter 5, verse 5, and notice what it says there. And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. They were already being told, you're falling in your iniquity. You're falling in your sin. Judah also shall fall with them, which eventually Judah would fall with, with them later into sin. And then you move toward uh, something, well, something we saw last week in Hosea four, uh, 13, verse 9. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. 
That is what it means. To fall in your own iniquity is to say you are destroying yourself. It is no, there's, there's no one else to blame. Don't forget that example back in the garden when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that they were not supposed to eat of. They ate of the tree that had the fruit, uh, the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. They were, they were supposed to stay away from that tree because on the day that they ate the fruit of it, they were going to die. So when the Lord confronts them, what does the man do? The man says, well, the woman that you gave me is the one that you know, got me involved in all of this stuff. And he's trying to pass this on to somebody else. You know, I mean, well, who's in, the, who's in the world at that time? Two people and one serpent. And then when the Lord faces Eve or the woman, she said, the serpent. That's how we are, aren't we? Today, we are always trying to pass the buck. Look at Washington today. Everybody's trying to blame Trump for everything. If, if, if Trump uh, himself came up with some, some medicine to, you know, heal all cancer, you know what the, the opposition would do? They, 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 they say, oh, they would, they would criticize him for, you know, taking people, you know, doctors and nurses out of jobs. What I'm saying is, I'm not trying to be political, what I'm saying is, even in our day and time, we're blaming all the time, everybody else, but not who's responsible. Don't forget that every time you point to someone, you're pointing three fingers back at yourself. And God says, it's time for you to take responsibility for your sin. That's why he says, you have fallen in your iniquity. The Israelites desperately needed to turn their lives around and return to the Lord because if they refused, they were doomed to face the hand of God's judgment. And at least three times, the Lord aroused Hosea to strongly urge the people to repent and to return. Three times. Other than the one I just read to you at the, in, in chapter 14. Hosea 6, verses 1 through 3. Now I'm giving you those three times. Come and let us return unto the Lord. For he has torn, he will heal us. He has smitten, he will bind us up. After two days he will, will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up. Isn't that an interesting statement? On the third day he'll raise us up? And we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. And he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Then you go to Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. One more time is that cry for repentance. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fellow ground. Fellow ground being that dry ground that uh, can't grow anything. Break up the fellow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness on, uh, upon you. Time to seek the Lord. Seek him. Return to him. And then, of course, Hosea 12, verse 6. Therefore, turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God. Continually. So three times previous to chapter 14 was this cry for the people to return. Now, verses 2 and 3 of our text, going back to chapter 14, looking at verses 2 and 3, along with verse 1, by the way, spell out the four steps that are to be involved in the process of repentance. Let me just turn this off here. 
So verses 2 and 3 give us the four steps that are involved in the process of repentance. First, the people had to acknowledge their sinfulness. That's why it says, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Acknowledge that. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess that you've sinned against God. Confess that you've sinned against his law. <coughs> Excuse me. Second, the people were to plead for forgiveness of sins with the very words they were given to speak. That's verse 2. Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, take away all iniquity. It's, it's, it's like us coming to say, look, Lord, I am responsible. I have sinned against you. I have fallen in iniquity. Lord, I cry to you, take that sin away. Take it away. And receive us graciously. Give us your good. Give us what is good. Your undeserved favor. We don't deserve it. We acknowledge that as well. I don't deserve his, his favor. None of us here do. Those are the very words to speak in seeking forgiveness of sins. Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. And then he says this, so we will render, we will pay the sacrifice with our lips as an offering. Now, I know that it says, so we will render the calves of our lips. The word for calves there is actually the word for a bullock, a bullock offering. And we've seen offerings, of course, in, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, especially Exodus, uh, Exodus uh, Leviticus, Numbers, where the, uh, where the sacrificial offering system is, is, uh, is given and, and which animals can be used for sacrifice and whatnot. And, of course, we know that bullocks were offered unto the Lord. What it is saying to, what it is saying to the Lord is, Lord, forgive us. Take away iniquity, and we will pay that sacrifice as a bull offering. It will be as if, you know, the calves of our lips, the sacrifice of our praise is as a bull offering unto you. Every, everyone who wants to be accepted by God must sincerely approach the Lord by asking him to forgive and to take away their sins. Why? Very simply, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us who was born into this world sinless. Every one of us, because of Adam and Eve's sin, every one of us is stained with sin. Not one of us is righteous when we come into this world. Not one of us. So we, we plead with the Lord to forgive us and to take away our sins and to receive us. And, and, and so they who do this must be willing to turn away from their sins and turn to the Lord in faith and obedience. Never, forget, never separate faith from obedience. Faith and obedience go together. Always. Faith and obedience go together. And the, and the thing is, it's just like when we talk about now the, the, the salvation that we have in Christ. 
There's nothing that we can do to earn it. It's given to us by grace through faith. It's not earned. There are not enough good works in, uh, that we can do to get ourselves saved. We have to surrender to the work of Jesus Christ. And I say that because obedience is not what we do to be saved. Obedience comes forth out of our trust and our faith in the Lord, just like every work that we do. We don't work for salvation, we work from our salvation. Therefore, we don't obey to be saved, we obey because we're saved. And so we have to keep that uh, perspective in mind. So that is when they can use their lips to offer up praise to the Lord. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. This is a beautiful verse of scripture. It's, it, should be, it, it should be something that we can learn and memorize every time we get together to worship the Lord with our lips, to, to worship the Lord in song. Because even what we did tonight when we sang songs unto the Lord, we were singing as a sacrifice of praise. So in Hebrews 13, 15, it says, By him, by Jesus Christ, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. The fruit of our lips. And now we can say the calves of our lips, as if offering the, the greatest sacrifice, because the bullock was a great sacrifice. That was, that was heavy-duty livestock, but it could be offered unto the Lord. Thirdly, the, the people had to know that no earthly power could save them. That's what verse 3 is about. Ashur shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the works of our hands. You are gods. For in thee, Lord, the fatherless find mercy. So no matter how many alliances that Israel formed with Assyria, uh, that powerful empire would not be able to save the northern kingdom of Israel. They weren't going to save them. They were going to destroy them. And they would have destroyed them utterly. Every nation that has tried to destroy Israel has tried to destroy them utterly, and it is God that has kept them from destroying them completely and utterly. Re remember that always. So neither their war machines, their war horses, their false gods and the like, none of those things could save Israel. And the fourth thing is the people had to confess that mercy is found only in the Lord. For in thee the fatherless find mercy. Only in the Lord will they find mercy. A few pages to your right, in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, it says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? Who's a God like our God that forgives our iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? You see, when you start looking at religions comparatively, most religions make you work for your salvation, and most of them will have some kind of plan that says, you know, when you fall, you have to do this, 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 and this, and this, and this. This is the way they're, they're, they're built. But not the God who created the heavens and the earth. He is one who pardons iniquity to those who call upon his name. And don't forget that he knows our hearts better than we know ourselves. 
He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Our God delights to forgive. You see, our God is not the Wizard of Oz. Y'all remember the Wizard of Oz? Some of you probably don't remember the Wizard of Oz. The great and mighty wizard, Oz. Manipulating everything, bringing fire and smoke out of, you know, and people are, oh. And all it took was a little dog to pull the to, to pull a curtain back, and there's this one guy manipulating everything, some little dude. That's not our God. Our God delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Anybody want to go back into the depths of the sea to get your sins back? I certainly don't want to. Anybody here? I'm just wondering. I hope not. Which means if God takes our sins and puts them there, why should we ever want them again? It is then that we see God's promise to bless Israel. Let's go to verse 4 now of Hosea 14. And notice what he says. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. I will heal their backsliding. We talked about backsliding as being the stubbornness of Israel to go away from God. Just like a donkey that's being pulled will, will resist and push back and, 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 and just slide back away from going in the direction of the master. He says, I'll heal it. I'll heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. That is the very same God who said, you know, if you don't repent, I have to judge you. I'm going to judge you. And in the midst of this particular book of prophecy, this, this prophecy of Hosea, it's, a, it's as if the Lord is saying, I have to judge you, but I don't want to. I'd rather be merciful to you. I'd rather we have this wonderful fellowship and relationship together. You know, it's a tremendous promise that God would heal his people of their wicked behavior and, and shower his love upon them. I mean, the Lord's grace will be freely poured out upon the repentant and his, and his anger will be turned away from them forever. Forever is a long time. I think a lot of us really love this passage by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Most of you know it. What shall we say then? Or what shall we then say to these things? What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, now one question that we do need to ask after reading this passage is, are we for God? 
If God be for us, who can be against us? That's great, but are we for God or are we against him? Are we for him or are we against him? And then as we go on in Hosea 14 verse 5, it says, I will be as the dew unto Israel. This is a beautiful passage. <laughs> it's so, it's, it's, on the surface, it's like, well, it's flowery, poetic, very deep though. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn, as the wheat, actually. The, the, uh, the wheat, uh, the corn is, is, the, is the fruit of, of, of the wheat. And grow as the vine, like the grapes that would grow. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. So the Lord said to his people, that he would be as the dew that falls bountifully in the Middle East. The dew falls bountifully, copiously, as it were. That's a good word. It's a 50 cent word, but it's a good word. Copiously, bountifully. Taking the place of, of the more frequent rains in other regions. We would think that uh, in, in much of the desert there's not a lot of rain, and there isn't, but you know what? There's always dew. And the understanding is that he will not be as the early dew that goeth away, but he would be constant. He would be a constant dew. By the way, this is how he described them, his people. The early dew that goeth away in Hosea 6, verse 4. Let me read it to you. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud. The morning cloud comes and goes, just dissipates, gone. And as the early dew it goeth away. That's the way his people were. You know, sometimes that's the way we are. We have these little spurts of spirituality in a sense, you know. All of a sudden we get, and then, and then after a while we just, that, that kind of dissipates and then we're back to the flesh. We've got to be careful about that. But one thing that we need to understand is our God is always a constant dew because he is constantly providing us everything that we need. And because of his constant dew upon them, they would grow as the lily. Just, just follow the path of this passage here. It, they would grow as the lily. By the way, no plant is more productive than the lily, one root often producing 50 bulbs. Now the common lily is white, I think you all would know that. But it consists, the the. the the common lily consists of six leaves, which, by the way, when they open, they open like bells. And the royal lily, a very special lily, even in those days and times and places in the east, in particular, would grow to the height of three or four feet. 
And those were the lilies more than likely that Jesus alluded to in Matthew 6, verses 28 and 29, when he says to his disciples, and why take ye through, I'm sorry, and why take ye thought for raiment? What you wear, what you will wear. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed, arrayed as, as, as one of those lilies that was so beautiful to the eyes. And then like the cedar tree of Lebanon, the Lord will give deep roots to his people and cause them to grow in faith as a mighty nation of people again and become beautiful like the splendor of an olive tree. You know, when we go to Israel, we, we, uh, we always go to the Garden of Gethsemane and there's some trees. There's, a, there's two spots where they say, you know, when, well, when one church says, well, this was the place where Jesus came and another spot says, no, it's probably over here. You go to both. <laughs> Solve the argument that way. But when you look at the trees, when you look at them, there's some that it, it has been uh, discovered that one of those trees is about 2,000 years old, which means it could have been around the, there around the time when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it just grows so wide and so strong. Producing still, by the way, olives. And it's acceptable to all producing the fragrance. Now going back to Lebanon and the cedars, the, the cedars have a beautiful fragrance. Uh, my old, old house where I was growing up, my, my parents had a, a cedar. Some people have cedar chests. Anybody have a cedar chest? You know, people like the smell of the cedar chest. This was a cedar closet. Man, it smells so good. That cedar, you know, and it, it just, that, was a, that was a place to be. Smelling a closet of all things, but anyway. Secure, dwelling in the shaded protection of God himself. That's the whole idea, that's the whole picture here. Fruitful, blossoming like a flourishing vine with a, with a fruit of God's spirit and famous like the wine of Lebanon. That's what he says he's going to do for his people. He's going to have his branches spread over them that his beauty would be their beauty. And then in verse 8 it says, Ephraim saith, shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? What, what am I going to do with idols anymore? I have heard him and observed him. I'm like a green fir tree. For, for me, from me is thy, thy fruit found. So what, what that means there in verse 8 is that the Lord is going to remove and erase all idolatrous worship from, the, um, from among the people. No longer will they place their trust and hope in false gods. In fact, even in modern Judaism today, uh, which has continued faithfully from the time of the Pharisees, even though the Pharisees in the Jesus' time had become hypocrites, nonetheless, the, 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 the Jews who continue on and since then to this day, have, I mean, they have forsaken, completely forsaken idolatry. They are not idolaters. Now, they need to have their eyes open so they can see Jesus, Yeshua, their Messiah, but God's, God's in control of that. 
You don't have to worry. So no longer will people place their trust and hopes in false gods. Instead, they will trust and fellowship with the Lord in an unbroken relationship. And those who will truly repent will know the Lord in perfection, face-to-face, never again giving their allegiance or placing their hope in false religions. So the Lord will answer the prayers of the people and meet all their needs, demonstrating his love, his loving care for them. That's verse 8, the second part of verse 8. From me is thy fruit found. So he will be like a green tree that always bears fruit and provides for his people. And yes, eventually they would learn their lesson. And yes, they would turn back to him. But not until after their captivity in Assyria and Judah and their captivity in Babylon. They would turn back to him and not ignore him any longer. And the Lord would make them strong again like a cypress tree and the fruit that will produce uh, that they will produce will come directly from the Lord and that is why it says from me is thy fruit found I want you to consider what Jesus told his disciples on the way to the garden of Gethsemane the night that he was betrayed John chapter 15 verse 5 one of the great I am statements of Jesus the last one that we, we hear I am the vine you are the branches He that abideth in me, which means he who dwells in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. And what we learned back in John chapter 15 is that we are to bear fruit, we are to bear more fruit, and we are to bear much fruit. But that comes because we dwell in Christ. The Lord will give us the fruit. Because, as he says, from me is thy fruit found. So we find our fruit from our relationship and our fellowship with Jesus Christ. So as the text says in John chapter 15, outside of Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. Outside of him, we can do nothing. Here is the significance of being accepted of the Lord. When the Lord accepts us and brings us into into his kingdom and into his fellowship, into his relationship that we are to have with him, he, he goes all in. He's all in with us. He's not like, uh, oh, I don't want to come down on any profession. You know, I was going to say insurance people, but now I've got to. Pastor Tom used to be an insurance person. <laughs> so I don't come down on insurance people. But it could be in anything, even car salesmen, whatever. I mean, just, sorry, bro. But it's all, it's all these things. <laughs> you know, it's all these things where, and by the way, Ralph's a great man, because he'll always remember you. That's the thing. All right. So and that's the point I'm trying to bring up is, is that, you know, you get these guys that come and they, you know, they're trying to sell you something and whatever it is, it could, it could be cotton candy, I don't know. But, you know, they're trying to sell you something and, and, and so they use you, oh, yeah, oh, that's great, and you're going to have this and this and this and this. So finally you sign on the dotted line, the next thing you know, you don't know where they are, where they are. 
right? They got to go off because they're still selling, because they're salesmen. They keep going and, and then you try to get, oh, can you call me? Uh, and they, they forget your name and they forget what they sold you. And, uh, oh, you remember me? Oh, uh, kind of, sort of, you know. Okay, so that's an exaggeration, I know. But, but folks, listen, our God goes all in when we come to him. And if he does that, shouldn't we go all in with him? Because it saves us a lot of problems if we, if we do that. <laughs> if we go all in with the Lord, yeah, we're going to have problems. Yeah, we're still going to have struggles and trials. Well, those things are what brings us closer to him. Those things are the things that help us to grow in, in maturity in Christ. Read the scriptures. But he wants us to go all out, all out for him. We need to go all in with, with Jesus because he's gone all in for us. Did Jesus not die on a cross for our sins? Did Jesus not shed all of his blood for our forgiveness? When do we get to a, to a place where we, where we make the t determinations, where we make the terms with God and say, well, God, you know, I'll, I'll accept you on my terms. No. You have to accept him on his terms. And by the way, his terms are pretty good. Jesus said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for, my, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The world doesn't have easy burdens. Religions don't have easy burdens. But even if we go through the terrible trials that some Christians have to face each and every day of their lives, they trust in the Lord. And they have the joy of the Lord. And by the way, Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. No matter what we face. So now Hosea concludes his prophecy in verse 9. Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors, the sinners shall fall therein the ones who willfully transgressed the law. So the Lord through the prophet Hosea was indicating that the path to Israel's peace is the path or the path of wisdom and prudence. We know from history what happened to the wretched people and the nation to whom Hosea preached. They went into, capti they went into captivity in Assyria. We also know from prophecy, especially later prophecy, that one day the remnant of Israel will return, they will repent, and they will be regenerated, regenerated, and as it is said, they will live happily ever after. Now, you don't see that phrase in the scriptures, but that's what's going to happen. When they're going to come back into the land of, 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 uh, of uh, Israel, and, and then when Jesus comes back to Israel, as he said he would, and begins the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, who wouldn't live happily ever after? And it's certainly our hope and desire that Hosea and Gomer lived happily ever after as well. And I believe that they did. God restored that marriage. He wouldn't just let his, his prophet, you know, he gives them an object lesson and then said, well, you know, whatever, whatever happens, happens, you know. No. As Israel is going to be saved, so will Gomer be saved. But to understand the conclusion to Hosea's prophecy, let's read the concluding words of Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. 
To understand the last verse of Hosea 14, listen to what <clears throat> Solomon says. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, that is, fear him in reverence, respect, and awe, and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now you might keep secrets from me and I can keep secrets from you, but one thing is for sure, God knows them all. And I'm not telling that you have to reveal anything to me. That's not the important thing. The important thing is, God knows our hearts. He knows what we struggle with. He knows when we struggle and why. And he waits for us to cry out to him and say, God, help me. You remember when Peter was sinking on the sea? After he had walked on the water toward Jesus, but as soon as he saw the storm, his eyes focused on the storm and he started sinking. And the first thing he said was, Lord, help. And Jesus pulled him right out of the water. Why? Because that's our God. The minute we cry, he hears us especially if we're in grave, grave problems with this world or the flesh or the devil. We need to heed what is being said in God's word. <clears throat> For in everything there are consequences. There are good consequences, but there are also bad consequences. So first, let's remember the very end of, of, chapter, nine, of chapter 14, verse 9. The ways of the Lord are right. That's what it says. The ways of the Lord are right. The law of the Lord is perfect. Read Psalm 19 tonight before you go to bed. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. The ways of the Lord are right. This is not up for debate. What God has told us in his word is perfect. They're right. And to ignore them just shows how foolish some people can be. Secondly, the righteous walk in them. So the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them. That's extremely important. It is one thing to understand what God has said. That's called knowledge. If you understand what God has said, that's knowledge. It's another thing to apply those things that God has said to your life. That's what we call wisdom. When you apply the things that God has given you in his word, then that's wisdom given to you. And you've, you've taken it as wisdom. Knowledge is one thing. If you understand what God said, now you've got to go beyond just understanding. And then thirdly, the transgressors, the transgressors, the sinners, shall fall therein. There will still be those who will fall. Even when the Lord's word is right and others are following and walking in them. So they will refuse to listen and apply the things of God to their lives and thus judgment will come upon them for their rebellion against God. I need to leave you with these words from the book of Deuteronomy. We were there earlier. Let's go there now and I'm, I'm going to close with this. This will be the last thing that I'm going to read to you for tonight as we close out the book of Hosea. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Two verses, 19 and 20. Again, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet. And the prophet, in this case, is Moses. And it says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have said before you life and death, 
blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, cling to him, take a grip of uh, hold of him, for he is thy life. Now, folks, listen to that again. He is your life. Without him, you have no life. And he is the length of thy days. You don't determine how long you live, and you shouldn't. Unfortunately, there have been those people who have taken their own lives. They themselves have set a determination to end their life. But you know what? The length of our days is not ours. It's his. It's God's. So he is the length of our days. That thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. And so we conclude the book of Hosea. The choices that we can make are made clear to each and every one of us. Whether we take the knowledge and apply it now, that's going to be up to us. When we make the choice for life, that's when we discover that from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, that God has chosen you. That's a good thing. The cry is, whosoever will come, and then when you come, you will know, saved from the foundation of the world. That's why we know that we don't save ourselves. God saves us. Christ saves us. His Spirit saves us.